What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest needs no introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a supreme honor for me. I am a huge fan, um, like we all are. And uh, Mr. Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad, how you doing? Hey, brother, I'm doing, but not mill doing. <laughs> yeah, right, nice, I love that. That's a song, that's a song. Yeah, it's gotta be. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. Um, I just want to say, I grew up in upstate New York, um, Utica. And when I would tour through Flint, Michigan, central Michigan, it looked a lot like upstate New York to me. It was the same yeah. kind of Rust Belt manufacturing base. And right listening to your records and, and, and following your career and being a fan, my whole life in upstate New York, it gave us working class, middle class, kids with a guitar and a dream hope and i just want to thank you from from all of us who who made it out and 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 made something outside of their their hometowns and and grand funk and 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 you you personally were a huge influence on me going hey listen if you work hard enough and and you apply yourself look what can happen so thank you well, God bless you for saying so. And I appreciate the encouragement, buddy, because I'm going to do this until I stop sucking air. <laughs> You're a lifer. You want to do it for the red? Yeah, I am. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the thing with what we're having to do now, brother, because of the absence of an audience mm -hmm. and you're doing a Zoom video, uh, you know that there's people there, but you just can't hear them. When you're right. done playing, there's no accolades. There's, you know, that connection, buddy, that we have with the audience. And right. we are, you know, we're inspired by it. We're pressed to go beyond our measure by it. And it's missing when you get done. And it's like, uh, uh, it's almost like stepping off the edge of a cliff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, was, I was listening to Grand Funk Railroad live from 1971 this morning. And like, you come right out of the box. Are you ready? And the crowd is louder than the band. And I got emotional. I go, I remember when crowds used to cheer and we could play in front of people. I mean, it's like, it's, 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 it's amazing how it's all changed in less than a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And anybody with their ear to the ground kind of bypasses the, the flamboyant expose before us and goes right to our heart, and we stay grounded in who we are. Hey, we came from a time before this ill influence got mixed up with us, and right. we're hanging right. on to that, and uh, the music comes from there. We can't let it come from anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, how much, uh, I have two questions. Um, I always say that the, the, the audience is, is 20 to 30% of the show because without the audience, you're just sound checking. Um, and, and what was the last time, what was your last gig in front of people before it all shut down? Like, I, like how important is the audience to your show and, and, and what was the last time you actually got to play in front of an audience? The last time in front of an audience was Florida. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, I think they, they call it Ruth Eckert Hall. I know Bobby. I know Bobby very well. We love Ruth Eckert Hall. Yeah. 
So, you know the place. That's a rocking place. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, you know, um, one of the things that um, I was wondering is, like, you know, everybody starts off, like, at their house, you know, listening to records or the parents' records. And there's a – who was your musical host when you first started to play? Who who encouraged you? Where did the guitar come from and, and the music that, that would ultimately shape your career? Well, Joe, since my mother and her whole family moved – to Flint, Michigan from Leechville, Arkansas, mm-hmm. uh, when she was 16 years old. Grandpa Cotton, Uncle Woody, Uncle Brian, all the, everybody plays instruments. So on Sunday, it's either gonna be over at my Aunt Dorothy's house with all of her six kids, or our house with my ma's six kids. And everybody would uh, show up and we'd have chicken and dumplings. Uh, right. With the hockey puck dumplings, I'm talking about not no biscuits, I'm talking right. about that, yeah. Right. And sloppy jokes. Right. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. We used to have them at the house all the time. And, and we'd play music. I mean, I didn't play. I just sat back as a little kid and I watched my dad play guitar and blow saxophone. And I listened to those women. It's still in there. It's, it's recorded. And I got a, you know, it's in my hard drive that the angelic voices that came from those gals. It would just make my hair on my arms right now talking about it. It's that good. Uh, So I was under the influence of music and my mother encouraging my sister and I, Diane, she's older by 17 months and I'll never let her forget it. (laughs) She encouraged us to go out and dance at these dance contests and 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 we started to dance together at home and it started to feel pretty good. So we'd go out and enter the contest and win. Nice. Yeah, because we was together. I mean, you know, family. Uh, so it was in me. But I saw, um, started playing sousaphone in the fifth grade, right? I'm big old thing. Right. But I was in that marching band, fifth grader. And it, I was listing to the left quite heavily. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yes. Marching with that because that's back when they were brass. And I would put that thing down and watch as the football players came out. And all the girls were like, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking that's what I need to be doing right there. Yes, and, and lo and behold, uh, I was, you know, I was in a junior varsity team and we'd scrimmage the varsity and they killed us. They myrtleized us and I had water on the knee. And the doctor told my mother that I wouldn't be playing any more sports. I couldn't run track or play football in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so she... For my 15th birthday, she had mercy on me, and she knew how much I liked hearing my name getting called out over that loudspeaker, Joe. Right. <laughs> that was partner number 66 in on the tackle. <laughs> right. right. You know, so she's, she knew, and she knew that I loved music because I always would just sit back, and I was so involved with how they would get into a song, you know, you know the family. But... Uh, here I got six lessons and uh, an acoustic K guitar she rented for the, the period of time for, for the lessons. And after the third lesson, the guitar teacher had a hunting accident. It was bird season in Michigan, and he shot himself in the foot with a 12-gauge. And so oh. my lessons were over after the third one. But he told my mother to have me go and jam with the guys and just watch them to because I told him about a band that my sister 
knew the guys because she was in high school and and he said just go up and watch them and learn because you know you're picking it up by ear and you'll be all right so i did and it worked what, what kind of music was the band playing? Was it like a mix of rock and roll, soul covers, you know, regional, you know, things? Yeah, a lot of Chuck Berry, uh, Beatles, mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know, uh, cover stuff, Yardbirds. Right. You know, um, it's it's funny because, you know, a lot of people have that same story, but but you know, the motivating factor for a lot of artists is, is they want to, they want to get out there. They, they, they wanted to be in front running, you know, being the master of ceremonies, you know, when did you realize that, that, you know, not only were you committed to doing it, but you were really damn good at it. At, uh, Atlanta pop festival in 1969. Mm -hmm. We were unknown. We had no record deal. We had music because I'd been writing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we walked on that stage and did our songs. The uh, attorneys that were doing the legal work for this pop festival were out of New York City. And they were our manager's attorneys, Terry Knight's attorneys. Right. So they got a deal going where they would accept a lesser fee, of course, if the, their band could go on and open the festival. Well, we did. Right. And I'll never forget it. it it's like I went from, from this garage band playing the hops, playing the wedding receptions, playing and, and passing a hat so you could get enough money to make it home, put the gas in the car. Right, make it to the next gig. Yeah. That's, that's what we did a lot. And... Because of that, I think, you know, I have such a appreciation, <clears throat> an attitude of gratitude for just being able to stand up and talk right now. Uh, let you know because a lot of our friends have gone the other way, and uh, you know, got caught up in things, got caught up in the hype and all of the other crap that comes in the music business. You really got to watch your step, eh, Joe? Absolutely. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's, um, you know, you were, you were, you were actually a member of speaking to Terry Knight. Now, for those who don't know Terry Knight, um, he, he had a band called Terry Knight in the pack and he was a DJ concert promoter. He was a, he was a Midwest legendary figure in rock and roll from like what, 1965 to about 1969. Yes. And was, 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 was killed tragically in 20 years ago, you know, and um, but he was the one that 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 kind of like he was he produced some of the records and and made the transition from the Mysterians to, you know, you guys started started calling yourself Grand Funk Railroad after the Grand Trunk Railroad in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Grand Trunk and Western. And that's fact, right. Terry was a songwriter and had written a song titled Grand Funk Railroad. And he asked us, why don't you just name your band? After my song, Grand Funk Railroad, we kind of looked around at each other and said, okay. Right. <laughs> no brainer. We liked it. <laughs> and when you showed up at Atlanta Pop, how quickly was it? Because you got a deal with Capitol Records. Um, how quickly did your life change after that, that performance? Because that was back in a time when one, one set at Atlanta Pop or Woodstock or, or it, it didn't matter, at one of these Monterey 
would change your life. And all of a sudden you would go from Flint, Michigan, doing gigs for tips to bona fide superstars. And it was not, a, it was a year, year and a half. Yes, they, the, um, the speed at which things, uh, you know, escalated and, and we were going forth and like, uh, because we were not signed directly to Capitol Records, we were signed to Terry Knight, who right. had a production deal with Capitol, and he told us, Brother Joe, that what we were getting as a band uh, was more than the Beatles got. Well, maybe they did get more than 6%, mm -hmm. but uh, that's what we got and split. But to, then on the tail end of our relationship with him, we were in the New York City attorney's office, uh, and they had just told us that we um, we needed $400,000 to pay the Infernal Revenue Service, and that they would loan it to us if we'd sign another three-year contract with Terry Knight in a good right. night productions. Because he had the deal with Capitol Records, he knew the actual numbers, and what he gave us was... It was chicken feed to start with, but then he took a management commission of it, you know. But we didn't understand anything until we were in that office and pressed into that place. And we said, I said to the attorney, I said, we can't just make up our mind like that and just say, okay, I mean, we got to talk this over, you know. As a band, they go, okay, we'll go in the other room. And they left. And I thought, God, that was awful nice of him. <laughs> so I went over and I sit down in the chair and I got my feet kicked up on the attorney's desk and I'm thinking uh, out loud, what are we going to do, guys? What the hell are we going to do? And I set up and my feet drag off the desk like this. Boom. That the first drawer that's on, you know, on the desk, that big drawer came sliding open. And I, and I sat up and I looked and here's the contract between Goodnight Productions, mm -hmm. Terry Knight, right, for sixteen percent. Wow. And, and the band was getting six of it, and then right. he was taking the manager's commission of that. So things not to do. Yeah. In music business. So, like, you know, one of the things, you know, I always tell people is when you say you're getting into the music business, a lot of, a lot of artists um, go, well, you know, I, I like music. I'm good at music, but I'll just let somebody else take care of the business side. But you learned you learned firsthand and really quickly that that wasn't something that was in your in your in your best interest, because not only you, you were having to split the six percent, it wasn't all going to you. You know, it was. It, and and you're like, well, why is everybody getting rich but us? And we're doing all the hard work. Yeah, man. And we were paid $350 a week for that first year. It was more money than we had made in a long time. I mean, e any of the three of us. So we just kind of accepted it. And, and we were foolish and gullible enough. I mean, my mother had to sign the contract because you got to be 21 in, in Michigan. And Don and I were 20 and Mel was 19. Right. So... We, we were definitely naive and uh, we were getting schooled, but there's just not enough time <laughs> for these lessons <laughs> so fast and so hard. Oh, my right. God. Um, one of my favorite records of yours is um, is 
the the like the live in 71 grand funk railroad live was recorded in jacksonville and west palm beach and it was and to me i always like i my favorite records are when the first track has yet hello you know and are you ready and it's like you just come out of the gate and you go this band has an inertia and and a, and a feel that that only these guys can 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 create you know what i mean you could it's you put any other group of players in the same tune and it wouldn't be the same it was the right band it was the right look it was the right everything at the time and i was talking to todd rundgren a few weeks ago and he was telling me like grand funk railroad had the best timing in the music business it was just it all started to to fall together the singles yeah. would be number one the album would ship platinum before the album was even done i mean you know that must have been some quite the roller coaster ride because you're just going man at some point we, we could do no wrong here uh, i think too that the basically the difference of that the momentum and the connection that we had with the audience is these days uh when we were in our heyday the radio and television was owned by people families and and after we'd done playing at their station a television station you know down the in uh, Cleveland, it was go to Herman Spiro's house and we're going to play touch football with the kids in the backyard and have some barbecue chicken. And, you know, it was right. mom and pop, grandmas and grandpas, people with moral conscience over what our children see and hear. This is what was in place up until the deregulation in 1996. So all during that time, the people influenced the radio stations that they listened to. The guy, the DJ that was there, he was every place and he was friendly to everybody. And we had a community that was based on that that uh, experience, the radio experience. That's what's missing because in 96, the uh, corporate conglomerates took over and there's no conscience uh, over what our children see and hear. Right. Uh, prior to 96, there was. Now there isn't. And so this, all this uh, has been, it's taken away from the creativity, Brother Joe. Even mm -hmm. the damn videos. Because I'm saying, you know, when Bridge Over Troubled Water came out, I was at WNEW there in New, in New York, and they said, man, we polled the audience, and they got a hundred diverse uh, definitions of that song, you know, what right. it meant, because there was no video. So uh, the time that I came up, there was no video, but people heard in Bad Time to Be in Love. That was the, played more than any other song in 1975 because people were calling in. They wanted to hear it over and over and over again. And so I got a BMI award for that, Joe. Uh, but that, that kind of music, it got taken away from us with the deregulation. It, the heart got pulled away from it and the representation of the people got pulled away from it right. and it started to be represented by the suits and by this corporate conglomerate sterile it's just uh, I, I don't uh, you know I don't really profess to be a military or anything but that uniform of the new world order that's with a tie right. <laughs> you, you saw the you know, the United Nations, they used to come in and you could tell who they were. They were dressed all like they're now you come in there and they all got ties on. Right. Right. You know, that's, the one thing, 
That's the one thing about Grand Funk to me. And I remember getting the music business for the first time and it was still regional. You know, I mean, like, you know, it, it, you know, now it, it's 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 it, what the, the central programmer will program the rock radio station for Seattle, Tucson, Arizona, Cleveland, Austin, Texas and, and Clearwater, Florida. And they play the exact same things. You got it, brother. That's it. And, and that's what makes it so sterile and void of personality and character and feeling. Right. And, and, and it takes away the, the regional, you know, like, you know, in the blues, you know, there's, there's, there's the, the, like, uh, from where I'm from, the, like the, the, the New England sound, like Roomful of Blues, Duke Robillard, Ronnie Earls, the West Coast guys like Bloomfield and Alvin Bishop, the Texas guys and yeah. the Chicago, you know, and the Detroit. And, and it's because of how you were raised and, and the values and, and, and the music you were in. Yes. What what about mid Michigan or central Michigan between Detroit and Flint? What what's going on up there that it produces some of this country's greatest music from Motown to Grand Funk Railroad to the MC5 to you know to to Cactus, Jim McCarty, all that like 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 what's going on up there because like it's it's a very special place. Well, I believe brother Joe that it is the auto factories that drew all of these people in uh, from every state in the union, but a lot of Southerners, like my mother's side of the family uh, from Leachville, Arkansas, uh, and they came from Mississippi. They had friends come from uh, Louisiana and Georgia and the Carolinas, and people were moving to get the high-paying factory jobs. Right. Well, they came, and the families are here. We got settled together and it's north meets south and there's there's not that racism bs in the north there there was nothing like that ever uh where i came from and i was in a, a predominantly white school but there was no racism that just right. all you know they had to work on that one but the the music that we listened to was on uh you know am radio back then right you know, coming up. So we had uh, WAMM in Flint. We had uh, CKLW and Windsor, Ontario, Rosalie. Uh, right. we it, All of this input, but my friend and guitar player, uh, first guitar player in the first band, we would watch his grandmother's radio. It's shaped like this. Right. And this, this thing is four feet tall, and it's AM only, but you... At about 11 o'clock at night, you could dial in the skip. And here comes, here comes John R. way down south in Dixie and the Royal right. Crown Dressing Show. It's WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee. And right. so we would sit there and, and listen to that and go deep, you know, uh, deep, deep blues. And, and you have Wonder Bread where you put uh, horseradish on one side and mayonnaise on other and you fold it together and you just eat it. <laughs> and, and listen to that deep, deep blues, dude. Uh, that's where uh, that's where our families learned it. That's where we all learned it in in, in Flint, Michigan, Detroit, in Pontiac, and Ann Arbor. Right. The bands that were formed are from these workers. Their families, their kids got together, started playing music. Oh, you know how to play your guitar? You gonna show me? Oh, you gonna show me? <laughs> it's right. like 
you know, uh, that's where it all started. And any place you got that kind of a peaceful uh, influx of people, and and there's two cars and boats and new houses, and you know, life was good here for a while. That's when you have uh, you have some good community, a real good community. How um how big of influence was Motown and Soul on 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 your on your on your musical journey? Well, I b- believe because of just the dancing of it, um, dancing to it, and winning dance contests, dancing to Motown stuff, you know, that it's part of my groove. And it's in a, my groove, even if just with a flat top guitar, it's it's deep. It's like Johnny Badanjic, you know, uh, he's he when he hits that snare, dude, it's like you're locked right. on. Yeah, where he wants you. And and that's what I feel like it, it has to go on uh, with all of us that lock in, you know, but um, that one, one, one of the one of grandpa's biggest hits is a cover of some kind of wonderful and um and to me it's the great it's the greatest version i, I remember hearing it and i'd be like man that just that is just kind of what i want to do you know um what what goes into picking a cover you know i mean and and you 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 guys are known for some of the greatest rock and roll originals but also some of the greatest interpretations of 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 songs that just just makes sense for the band to play in, in the context of a live set or, or on record. I mean, what what was the criteria of picking picking a song like Some Kind of Wonderful, and did you know it was going to be a hit? Well, thank you, Joe, in the first place. But we didn't really pick that. Andy Cavalieri, uh, our manager after Terry Knight, was, uh, you know, he'd ride in the front seat of the limo, and we're back there and, and just warming up the vocals and start singing and Brewer would sing a part and he kept turning around then one night he just said you know you guys ought to record that what what the hell is that what song is that and we said you know it's the soul brother six and uh it was a regional hit in michigan and when we did it and jimmy einer the producer knew that we were going to do it oh he he's really good with vocals like uh bad time to be in love he knows where to put them in the mix, and he knows what tonality to use on them. Right. <laughs> uh, they, they work. I was uh, listening, and, and I always, like, if somebody asked me, like, describe Mark Farner as a singer, and, and if, I wasn't in a hur- if, I, if I was in a hurry, and I'd be like, he's the American Steve Marriott. And... <laughs> and only you and Steve had that power in that range and that, that ability to, you know, in the context of a small combo group, the, your voice was as big as sonically as the band. How did you, how did you learn how to sing? And, and, and B, how did you maintain your voice, you know, like at like places like, oh, I don't know, Shea Stadium, when, when you got 100,000 people screaming for you, and they don't have the wedges and the monitors like we do now, and you're just using the force, and your pitch center is fantastic. I mean, how did you maintain that from day to day? Because that's a, that's a big sing. Your catalog's a big sing. Well, I appreciate that, too. I appreciate the encouragement. But uh, inspirationally, it was Howard Tate for me. Of course, I love Aretha. I love, you know, little Stevie Wonder and 
Ray Charles and, you know, a lot of, but I'm into soul. I'm into, you know, the feeling of it. Right. Not so much a characteristic of a beat type or anything else, just the feeling, the soul, because anything could be soul music as long as it's catching the souls. Yeah. And, uh, and Howard Tate, I got his album. Uh, we had been in, in Nashville, Tennessee with the pack. Mm-hmm. We cut mm-hmm. our first 45, which was the Harlem Shuffle, <laughs> in a guy's garage down there. And he burnt a 45. Uh, it was an acetate, you right. know, just a music on one side. <clears throat> We're coming back to Michigan and we got across a state line out of Ohio and we starting to pick up WTAC and we want Bob Dell to play this so bad, you know. Mm-hmm. So we are breaking the speed limit by long shot. Right. <laughs> and we got there, we come in, he's still on the air, and we say, Bob, this is our new record. Can you please spin it? And he says, give me that thing. Put it on, and he spun it. And there, you know, that was part of why I loved it then, because the people owned it. And if you had a relationship with that person, then you could you could have a little favor. But on our way out, Bob Dell says, you guys see all them albums over there? Just take them with you, whatever you want, because uh, the rest of them's going in the dumpster. And I looked, I mean, just stacks, you know, from the floor, just big stacks. So I walk over, I did a little album roulette. Uh, brrr, I reach my hand in there. I pull out Howard Tate. Right. And it's uh, purple with a blue. I mean, it's just a two-tone album cover. Get it while you can. And so I... I take it home, I put it on, and it was like something grabbed my ears, went, right, right. sucked me right in. I went, oh my God. So I, uh, dude, I just tried to emulate part of his grooves right. and his, yeah, his fluidity. Forget about it. Oh, such confidence and, and hit those notes so piercingly true. Woo! Gotta love it. Well, that's why I always hear, heard you. I mean, there, there's a great video for those out there. Um, you can just look it up on YouTube of you guys in 1969 playing a song, one of my favorite Grand Funk songs, Inside uh, Inside Looking Out. Okay. It's not the, you know, it's, of course, it's they know you from the big, big songs. But to me, it's like when you listen to a band, there's always a moment of truth where where it's not a single. It's not it's not anything other than what the band wants to play. And that song, to me, epitomizes what you guys are about, because it's really just a blue collar working band kicking ass. And that was a real that was a real eye opener for me, because I was like, on yes, you can you can craft things for radio and stuff like that. But then you also have to play some music for yourselves and for the fans that come out there and just want to be taken on a journey, you know, Um, and and you were you're singing your ass off and you're playing this messenger guitar. And this is what I'm getting into this conversation. And a lot of a lot of um, guitar heroes in that era would have been playing a Strat or a Les Paul. First time I ever saw a Valeno guitar, Mark yeah. Farner. First time I saw a red microfits, which I which I still own because of you, Mark Farner. And the first time I saw a music craft messenger guitar, Mark Farner. What 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 drew you into those? They're they're odd choices for rock stars in the 70s. You know what I mean? They were like 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 and 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 I can tell you that the microfrets 
is not an easy guitar to play, but you played it great. <laughs> so let's start, let's let's start with let's start with the the to me the, the most famous is, is 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 the messenger. Where'd you find it? Well, my friend who was a rep for Sun Amplifiers mm -hmm. also had this guitar line that he had taken on. Of course, he had all kinds of stuff. But you you open the trunk of that great big Lincoln, and he'd have all kinds of you know. Uh, he was a salesman, and he whipped out this guitar. He said, look at this, Farner. It's, it's got an aluminum neck, and it goes all the way through, and it comes up, and that tailpiece is hooked to that neck. Mm -hmm. I said, what? What are you talking about? I, then I started looking. I thought, oh, my God, this, this, it stays the same dimension all the way up. You don't have to make room for where the marriage of the neck and the body is, right. fat, and, and you could play the same oh, they're a little closer together up there but it's that same feel so and it had the built-in Jimi hendrix instant hendrix you reach back toggle switch which had a volume and a pr uh, gain like for the yeah. yes yeah and if you hit it just right with those west amps oh my god it would do it without the squealing and carrying on but that messenger was known for its squealing, and I stuffed it full of foam rubber and put duct tape over the f holes on the thing. Yeah. Oh, I had a hell of a time with that thing. But uh, which is sure right over there, right? That's that's the original guitar. That's her. Oh my God, that's that. What a moment! And you know, that's that's to me when I hear the song "Paranoid," that to me is that guitar. It's indelibly yeah. linked. It's the fuzz. It's the yeah. you know and and. It's amazing. And then you moved to microfrets and then a Valeno. How did how did you how did how did the microfrets get on your radar? Well, I that adjustable nut. <clears throat> I was playing with the slinky strings, and of course, when you play an E and you're excited, <laughs> the G string's gonna go way sharp, right? Right. So I thought if you could adjust for that there on that nut, and and you know set it a little longer for that that press. It's cool. And I did. And it worked for me. And uh, the only thing that didn't work was how often that damn neck would just go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and you had to line it back up. And, but uh, it was it was just the uniqueness of it. And I could get it to do what I wanted it to do with the amp setup that I had. Right. And you're using yeah. West amps. Yes. And it, those pickups, the original pickups that were on the Messenger and the pickups that are that are on the microfret are similar characteristically. They're they're nothing like a humbucker, right? At all. Well, you always had a different sound than everybody else, and that was that was what made it unique. You know, it, I'm sure you were aware of the Les Paul and the Strat. Was it a conscious decision to to like on? I know what everybody's doing over here. I know I know what Clapton's playing. I know what you know. Everybody's you know playing. Jimmy Page had the Les Paul. You're like I I don't want to I don't want to join the group. I want to I want to sound different and and my choices in equipment. You know, but that that never entered into it because it was just the circumstances that you know that arose. This guy sold me that guitar, Joe, two hundred dollars in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me make it $25 a week payments on it. Nice. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And that got me going. 
And when, know, when, did, when did you get the Valeno? When did that start? Because that came in, I, I started seeing photos from like 1975, 90-ish. It was uh, Shining On. Okay. Yeah, when that, we went to rehearsal one day, a uh, sound check, and uh, this guy was out in there, it was John Valeno, uh-huh. and he was out in the audience, and he had a hold of the Valeno like this in mm-hmm. front of him, and he's got his chin resting on it and the neck is sticking up in the air and every once in a while he just kind of moves like this and he's catching my eye on that that aluminum guitar and i go over to the head roadie and i say john that that guy's got aluminum guitars it looks bad as hell man get him up here i want to take a look at that thing and that's that's why he was in there and that's why he was doing that and I bought number four from him that was not chrome plated. You had to use that semi-chrome polish on it to get the shine back. But right. dude, one night, and I would sweat it up, and it'd be trashed. Right. So uh, went to the chrome one soon after I got that number four. Uh, and that's the one that people saw on stage was the chrome. Right. It's 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 it was really cool because it was really you know I, as a as a guitar geek as a kid and now I mean it was always it was always that guitar and the reason why those guitars are famous are because of you you know and and it was like and and there are pictures of Greg Allman playing Greg Greg had one and but he rarely played guitar with the Allman Brothers but he he had one it was, so it was like oh, what what are these odd shaped metal looking things you know <laughs> and neck heavy oh my God neck heavy dude. You let go of that neck and it's just, <laughs> see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I got two questions. When they told you you sold out Shea Stadium faster than the Beatles, A, did you believe them? And, and B, when you actually got there, sound checked, and then it was showtime, and you walked out to that stadium full of, that's a legendary gig. It'll go down in history as one of the legendary gigs of all time. Yeah. And, you, you know, what was what was the feeling like when you you hit the first note going oh my god look what we've done well can i preface it by saying that because we had just done a european tour and just finished it uh where humble pie was opening for us in europe right i suggested to the manager why don't we take humble pie to the united states with us they are rocking man with oh yeah perfect perfect combination so their debut album or debut show was at the stadium it's Shea Stadium and as we flew over in the helicopter uh stage was set up at second base there you could see the bleachers bouncing dude I am not kidding you uh seriously moving Uh, from a long ways away you could see them seriously moving so you know it was really but they did, they they held up. They did tear down the stadium, so I guess we got that record indefinitely now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, you know, one of the things about all these gigs, and and you know, you could you could talk to anybody who's been involved in something like that. When you look at it from afar and from a distance, you're going, "What a moment!" But then sometimes you get on those gigs where there are big moments in your life and your career, and it sounds. It doesn't sound very good when it was going down. How did it sound on stage when you like when you were playing? Was the sound good? Was it balanced or or was it a struggle to get over the the crowd? Well, you understand uh, sound and you you know that 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 audience was sitting in a half circle. Right. 
so there was a focal point to their noise mm-hmm. and it was second base dude that was where the that was where the stage was set up right and so when they start singing uh closer to home i'm getting closer to my home oh my god it drowned out the big pa system that we had we right. had plenty of front speakers i was singing to front of house i didn't have any wedges right you know Me. Uh, uh, but when the audience started, Joe, oh. <clears throat> and, and, and thank you for bringing up one of the greatest songs of all time. You know, I'm your captain, close to the home. You know, was I'm always curious, was was the tag at the end, was that based on a live version? Or was that something you came up with in the studio? Or was it a bit of both? How, how, did, how did you arrange that? Because it's so perfectly, it's like, it's, it goes in movements, but it's like a perfectly crafted rock and roll. It's an anthem. It's, yeah. it's, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just an anthem. You know, <laughs> and, and sometimes that stuff is born out of going, hey, we got this thing that works really well live. Let's record it on record or vice versa. How, how, did, it, how did it come about? Well, we were at Cleveland um, doing the Upbeat show. And the band leader for the Upbeat show, Tommy Baker, uh, who is a horn player, uh, he says, because I was showing him the the lick, you know, I was showing him the song. He says, oh, my God. He says, I'm hearing things. I'm hearing things. He says, when you get to the end of your, you know, going to the section and you go to the bridge and you go to that breakdown, he says, and you're going to go out. He says, just keep going, man. And I'm talking about... Just keep going. And when you think you've done enough, just keep going past that. That's he emphasized it. And so when we recorded in Cleveland Recording Company there, we just kept going, man. And we gave Tommy Baker the room that he needed to create that musical extravaganza that right. he took us on. Yeah. And, and, you know, that song defies all rules and regulations of rock and roll radio. It's yeah. long. It's yes. like seven and a half minutes. It's, you know? it's nine, dude. Oh, is it nine? Yes. And, and you can't believe how many DJs have said, Mark, I want to thank you personally for that song. Because I could do a number two, a number one, smoke a cigarette <laughs> and get a sandwich before I come back to the mic. <laughs> yeah. Did they ever did they ever try to talk you into doing an edit? Because I'm sure I'm sure they wouldn't say said, oh, we we uh, you know, somebody with a cigar. So we, we can't get a record on the air with nine minutes. It's like, that's like two songs, you know, it's like, did they ever try to talk you into that? They tried Joe, but, it, but that song speaks as a whole. It, uh, you can't just take a portion of it and go, eh, doesn't right. it's work. Not the same. Yeah. Not, yeah. How, how many takes on the vocal? Because it, it's so well sung. But it's so heartfelt. It feels to me like it's, it's, it's like you sang it down like at a gig yeah it's that's the way i did 90 percent of my vocals it was just first take because that's when the character's there that's when you feel it that's when you know the char- character has to accompany the vocal uh, presentation that you in your mind you are the, the character and you got your eyes closed and here we go right and and Sometimes by the third or fourth take, it's like it doesn't have the magic. Maybe yeah. you know you start exactly correct. They they self correct. I go through this with my band, which I just produced a record for a, a, a gentleman named Jimmy Hall, who was in Wet Willie in the seventies. Yeah. Great I know singer. Well, 
And, you know, I was telling him, because it's real, you know, gut bucket, roadhouse, rock and roll. And I said, man, we got three takes of this because the fourth take, it gets too neat and tidy. And everybody starts thinking. They stop feeling, you know. And sure enough, second take, third take, we're done. You know, it's, it's <laughs> I love, I love yeah. making records like that, you know. Yeah, um, Do you... I know some artists, I've talked to some artists in this program that, that they won't say it out loud, but, but they kind of have this thing where they, they, they don't really, they, they don't, not, it's, the word is not appreciate, but they're not really fan, they don't really fancy playing classic songs from their past every night on the gig, you know? And I was noticing the, the, the set list on your, on your new uh, live DVD that's out February 23rd. And and you're closing with you know you know I'm your captain. You get to all the you get to all the songs that people want to hear from Mark Farner. And and do you ever go, man? I just you know wish I didn't have to play this one tonight. Or is it just going? I I can't believe I have this wonderful classic catalog that transcends generations. Well, that's where I come from because I've always tried to give them the record. You know, I don't want to embellish or take off on a long solo or something i want to make it like they remember it and the mm -hmm. the more we can do that closer we can come to giving them that mm -hmm. the happier they're going to be and the more they're going to want you to come back and do it again right right and uh the new the new dvd is uh live from chile with love and uh where was it? it obviously recorded in Chile, but where, where, what, what city was it recorded in? Santiago. It Great was, place. Yeah, man. It was recorded at Teatro Calpalican, mm -hmm. the theater around there. Yeah. And the people do this, as you mentioned earlier, about how the audience is right there in that live recording. Well, brother, they are right here. There's no way they couldn't be. They were so loud. They were in every microphone on the stage. Right. And it shows. Uh, there's there's actually 16 live performances, two bonus videos, and five bonus tracks. The people, in, uh, the Chilean audience, they know me. Uh, by my songs. I am who my songs say I am to them. They've learned English to interpret a song to know because it was touching their heart so much. They have they had to learn it and know what that meaning was to, you know, to, to appreciate it and define it. I think that is like, holy crap, man. You know, somebody loves you like that, it shows up. And in this DVD, um, we are blessed to have that kind of relationship the, you know, they're singing in American English, <laughs> right? Right. You know, and they're singing loud. And one of the, one of the things, I mean, it, it's always touching and I don't have that catalog. I have songs that my fans know from me within my sphere of influence, but, um, that I just notice that people around the world in are so appreciative that you show up and and play for them and i there's moments of yeah and, and yes being on the road is tough but there's moments for me where i just go I, I grew up in a town called yorkville new york okay and it maybe had 1500 people and i went to a school that had 300 people from kindergarten to to 12th grade all in one building and i go look at me you know i mean it's like 
it, it the perspective and and it gets back to what I was saying at the, the very beginning. It, 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 it and I and I say this in all truthfulness. You were the one that inspired me and 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 your band and like on these guys work their ass off. They make music in an honest way and they and they got out and they played and they went and they dominated the world. And it's like it's 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 so great to see that. Thank you, brother Joe. I appreciate it so much for this encouragement. And may I mention that uh, on that DVD that sells for $14.99, okay. $3, $3 from every DVD goes to Veterans Support Foundation. Veterans Support Foundation is helping our military personnel coming back. They, they've got all kind of different diseases and what have you, and they need help. And a lot of the people that have been in the street, uh, Veterans Support Foundation picks them up uh and gives them a place to start, gets them a, a job, gets them the job training, uh, the self-esteem, and puts them back in the society functioning. Um, so we really believe in it. If I could give an 800 number, it would sure do me good. Hit. Let's, let's hit it, and we'll put it on our website too. Okay, it's 800-882-1316. That's 800 882 1316 and on the web it's www.sf no what did I say vsf veterans support foundation dash usa.org that's great it's it's great to give back and and I also wanted to to, to mention that um, your GoFundMe page for um, for uh, central Michigan uh, flood vic flood victims you know people lose everything in a heartbeat and and you know, I'm, I'm coming to you from Nashville, and about six or seven years ago, maybe maybe more now, it's time flies, the, there was a catastrophic flood here in Nashville, and, yeah. and people lost everything in an hour, and, and, it, and you don't realize how, you go, oh, it's just a little bit of rain. It's really not. It's your whole life is gone. Oh, and it is. You're exactly so, right. So that so we'll put that on the website as well and, 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 you know, and promote that. But, um, you know, Mark... One of the great honors of my lifetime has been talking to you for this hour, and 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 I can't thank you enough for being here. You know, you're not only a, a rock star, but you're a kind-hearted, wonderful human and a philanthropist who gives back. And 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 I just can't I can't thank you enough. It is my pleasure to have been here with you, brother Joe, and to feel your heart, even though we're a few hundred miles apart. We are instant because love, there ain't no distance in love, brother. <laughs> exactly. And I always say it's nice to meet your heroes and they turn out to be really great people. And, and, and today, today is one of those days for me. So, so, so thank you. So thank you very much. Ladies thank and gentlemen, you. the great Mark Farner. What an honor. This has been live from Nerdville. Please tune in next week. Thank you very much to Mark Farner. And uh, we'll put all the information on the website about the new DVD, the, vet, the, the Veterans Charity, and the, and, the, and the GoFundMe page. All right, brother. Thank you so much. God bless you, and God bless the listeners. Knock them alive, brother. Good. God bless.